All right, so you guys, we've been doing this weird series for the last, I don't know, month or so, um, maybe a little bit longer, about cultural engagement. Um, Prior to that, it was really about the cultural decadence, trying to get our heads around, like, what's the state of the world, and how did we get here? And we, we went back, like, several many hundreds of years to try to understand the kind of the the gigantic forces that shape the culture um, that have been influencing us and in which we find ourselves in the present moment. And then we, tr- I tried to help you guys discover some of your own default thinking about how we should engage the culture. There's a lot of different ways that people answer this question and those answers are based, as it often is, on other kind of uh, beliefs and assumptions that we might make. Um, and there's, there's, it's a complex answer. There's a lot of different things that we should consider when we enter into, engage with a culture that's broken and that's dying and that, is, that has at a very, very deep level some false beliefs in it. Um, but different, I showed you this grid, this kind of like four quadrant grid of ways that we might think about it. And the point wasn't to say which is the good quadrant, but for you to recognize which quadrant is your default mode. This is how I tend to think about the world and how I think about it. I think that we need to just like transform the thing. We need to jump in. We need to seize power. We need to like make things be the way that we know they ought to be. Or... Do we just step away and say, listen, y'all just go ahead and live your lives and ruin everything, but we're going to create a separate kind of community? How do we do it? There's a, a number of different options. Um, and I think that each one of these options, all, all four of them, have valuable things to speak, valuable things to say, that we, valuable inputs we want to grab. But they've also got limits, and some, there's some downsides to some of these. And what we want to try to do is take the good and, and, and get rid of the bad. But... If you've been with me this far, you might be growing impatient and want to say, okay, yeah, but actually, what do we do? This has been a long, long lead up to get to this point of what do we actually do? And that's where we're going to start this week and kind of hopefully persist for, for, I don't even know, a couple months probably stay in this. Um, But here's the bottom line. If you want to know what do we do, I think what we do at this cultural moment is that we live out the biblical vision embodied in 1 Peter. That's the bottom line. Okay, so live out the biblical vision embodied in Peter's first epistle. I I don't think that for our cultural moment, what's going on in the world today, and to answer this question, there's anything more more important for us to really understand, to deeply kind of like embrace than than Peter's first letter. I want to invite you to consider reading it. We'd start there. Read it. It's like five chapters. It won't take you that long. You could even memorize it. I don't know if you've ever memorized a book of the Bible, but you can totally do this. I used to bribe my college students at Penn State all the time. I'd give them a hundred bucks off a conference if they would memorize a short epistle like like First Peter. It can be done. Just monkish, slavish repetition. Little bits at a time. And we might even do it. I might do, we might take a week and talk about how do you memorize large chunks of scripture. But whether you read it, uh, memorize it, we really want you to understand it. Um, and not only understand it, but practice it. We're going to be, we'll be in 1 Peter, but before we go there, I want to look at 2 Peter. So, so if, you made, if you made your way all the way to 1 Peter, just go like a few more pages to your right. Take a look at 2 Peter for just one second. Um, this is the same author, written to a, writing a different letter to a different audience, but he says something here in 2 Peter 1 that I think is, I, this passage has captivated me, and it kind of a little bit explains why I'm so bullish that we would really go to the scriptures, in particular to Peter's letter to, to get our head around this. So here's First Peter, or I'm sorry, Second Peter 2. Second Peter chapter 1. Good grief. 2 Peter 1, 3, okay? Second Peter 1, 3. He says this. God's divine power has given us 
everything we need for life and godliness. Okay, that's a pretty big claim. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But he continues, through our knowledge of him. Okay, so, isn't it? so everything we need, by, by his power, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, right? So that we can live this life, so that we can be what he wants us to be. He's given it to us through his power, right? Or through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So there's something about knowing him. There's something that the more that I know him, the more that I understand him, the more that I've got an accurate vision of who he is, this person who, by the way, if we're talking about him, we might, we might want to mention the fact that he's called us by his own glory and goodness to himself. He's inviting us to him, right? Our knowledge of him is going to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And he goes on, through these, through his glory and his goodness, that is, verse 4, he's given us his very great and precious promises. Okay, so it's not just some abstract knowledge about him, but it's a very specific knowledge about the things that he's promising to do for us. If I knew, if I understood the promises that he has made to me, this person who's called me by his own glory and goodness, I would, have a, I would have a richer and a fuller picture of who he is. And that knowledge of him will some way provide me with the things that I need to live this life and be the person he wants me to be. Okay? So, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, through his glory and goodness, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Okay, this is interesting. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just some data that I can recite. But this knowledge, this experience, this understanding of his glory and his goodness and the promises he's made from all of this enables me to, quote, participate in the divine nature. So that's weird. I'll come back to that in a second. And escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. These two kind of like action points is that we participate in his nature and we escape corruption in the world. Okay? So with all that, what do you think it means to participate in the divine nature? That is not a phrase that you probably have uttered often. What? What does that mean, you guys? Lily? I think it's about our oneness with him. I think so, yes. Yeah, if we do things in the spirit, we're participating in his divine nature. That's right. I mean, we're told to do everything in the spirit. Walk and love in the spirit. I mean, there's something to be one with him. That's right. And, th and this doctrine, this idea, what Lily's saying, it's, it's some, something about our oneness with him. This, there's a doctrine that we call union with Christ. And it is, it's the foundation of everything good in your life. Everything you have, you have in Christ. We are forgiven in Him. We are adopted in Him. If you just go through, you can do a, do a word study on this phrase, in Him. All the good stuff is in Him. And if you are in Him, you get all the good stuff. This participation in the divine nature is this weird, mystical union. It's, it's like, and, Paul, and in fact, Paul says it is like the marriage union, that the two become one. There's some weird, like intersections of persons in marriage, right? And that intersection of persons, not just sexually, although that's central to it, but in the sharing of your lives as the two become one, that is meant to be a picture of our union to Christ. That we are, we are united to him, we participate with him. It's what Jesus is talking about if you're familiar with. In fact, just go there just real quickly. Go to John 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, 
Jesus last night before his crucifixion. Um, listen, listen to the language here. Uh, John 17, go to verse 20. This is what it means to participate in the divine nature. It says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. See this kind of mingling weirdness? May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Like all this twisting combining of persons. May they be brought to complete unity, not just with each other, but also with us, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. All right? So through all of this thing, he, we, he's given us everything, by his divine power, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, called us by his own glory and goodness. Right? He's given us these great and precious promises so that by them we can participate in the divine nature, we can be one with him, and as we're doing that, it actually enables us to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Those evil desires might be somebody else's evil desires, but they're also probably yours. They're certainly mine, right? Okay? That we want things. And this, this wanting, we want unworthy things, and we got to, like, shift. We want to reorder our loves from loving unworthy things too much and worthy things too little. we got to start shifting these things back around. And the way that we're going to get there is because we, we know His promises, we know Him, we're connect, our lives are connected to him. And if we're doing these things, y'all, you have every, you, you, that's everything you need. You will have everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of him. Who called you by his own glory and goodness. He gave us these great precious promises so that we can participate in the divine nation. Escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. This is what's going on, okay? And that whole thing is what First Peter is all about in a very particular context. And that's where we're going to spend the next number of weeks. Okay? So let's pause. There's a ton of stuff there in that paragraph. Anything about that's not clear or maybe really clear that you love? Any, any, any insights you guys have in that quick paragraph from Second Peter? Of what we have in him. Mm-hmm. How do we get it then? How do we, how do we come to know these promises? How do we know him? How do we experience? What, what has to happen in order for, for 2 Peter 1 to get unleashed? Yeah, Bill? I think the sermon this morning tells us how to do it. Okay, excellent, right? Do you remember, what, what were the four key points? Yep, maybe I heard all four. That it, it's, it's that, that if you weren't in the first service, the, the, the text that Archbishop Kwashi and, and, and Quig looked at is... Uh, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to these four things. The apostles' teaching, which is the scriptures. That's what they were teaching. The fellowship, living life in community with other people. The breaking of bread, which it could be, it's actually, that one's a little bit ambiguous. It could be referring to communion. It could be referring to the sharing of meals. What's a little bit strange in our context is those used to actually be the same thing. Like, I'm pretty sure if you took like somebody from the first century church and you gave them a square centimeter of cracker, they would have no idea what you were talking about, right? Like, they, this is not, they were eating. They were actually eating. Um, it's a strange thing. And then, and then finally prayer, right? The, these, these are the four things, right? This is what we do. We devote ourselves to his word, living with his people, meeting him at the table, joining in prayer, and there, and there it is, right? This is what we want to do. Now, all scripture is God-breathed. 
but not all scripture is equally useful for any particular moment in time or any particular problem. There are some psalms that speak directly to the need of your heart. There are some challenges that might show up in one of the gospels or one of Paul's letters um, that are useful. And, I, and you can take it by faith or you can reject it, but just stay with me. I'm telling you, First Peter is our go-to book. So we're going we're gonna to try to get our head around that. And today we'll probably just, we only got about a half hour, we'll probably just try to give it a big 30,000 foot view of First Peter. Okay, so flip back a couple pages, get to First Peter, take a look, and tell me, help me build a, uh, build a map, high-level view of First Peter. What do you guys know about this book? And any, it's all, just throw it all on the table, anything, and we'll try, we'll try to organize it together. What's the deal with this letter? Yeah, Fetz? Okay, excellent observation. Is it his first letter or his second letter? Uh, Might be his third. Yes. Okay. This is this is this is Peter. Peter, of course, being really the chief leader of the church. Right. He was the chief among the twelve. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem as the church develops. Paul becomes the leading missionary. He's the go out and go someplace else. He's the uh, literally the word apostle means the sent one. He's the missionary that goes out. But Peter's leading the home base. Right. James does too, but Peter's really the, the chief guy. So this is his letter. Yeah. Wait, one second. Rachel first. Strangers suffer glory revealed. Okay. Well, what, what, what do those words mean, Rachel? What are you saying when you say that? Uh, I don't know. It's my notes for when you preach. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Yeah, we, and we did. We talked about this. I was, I was wondering. If, <laughs> it's funny you say that because we did talk about this just a couple of years ago, and I never know if anybody has any memory of anything that I ever say. So, <laughs> so that's good. So say it, say it again real loud. So strangers, um, and I think these are like the four themes that is throughout the book of First Peter, but strangers slash aliens, um, and then suffering glory, and that glory will ultimately be revealed. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, let me, well, let's unpack those as we go. We'll probably get through all four of those today, so that, but that is a little bit of the answer key, so well done. That's great. And what were you, one of you was trying to say something too. Terry? Oh. Hope, okay, huge theme of hope in this book. And that's really about when Rachel says, like, glory that will be revealed. Hope is a huge thing. We've, we've talked about this very recently. Remember, what are the two big anchors you need in your life? Gratitude. Yeah, gratitude and hope. And which one's more powerful than the other? Hope rules, okay? Peter's all about, there's a, hope is a huge theme. Like, good stuff is coming. Good stuff is coming. This actually really pervades lots and lots of New Testament books, Old Testament too, but hope is a major theme. Of, and I'll, I'll try to show you that here. Maybe we can, we can do a quick um, overview of that. So good. What else is going on in First Peter? Any other biggies? Yeah, Kelly Sue. This isn't so much about the book, but I just like to think of it in the context of Peter's whole life. Yes. Because he's like the impetuous apostle or disciple who, like, you know, is bold and reckless and Sends Christ three times and is restored on the beach by saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And this is like 30 years later. So you get to see Peter change. You get to see the sanctification and the the working out of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life as he submits and fulfills his command to feed the sheep now. Yes. It's a great observation. So Kelly, Kelly, in case you didn't hear all that, so if if we know that Peter wrote it, then it kind of might bring to mind, like, who, okay, who is Peter, right? And not only is he the leader of the church, but he's also the big, dumb oaf 
that's constantly putting his foot in the mouth, his foot in his mouth throughout all the gospels, right? He is like the, you know, he's kind of the big fisherman. You don't get the sense that he's not particularly well educated. He's just particularly bold, right? And he's always the first to speak. Sometimes he gets it right. He often gets it wrong. And then he has this huge crash, right? When he denies that he even knows Jesus and then goes out and weeps bitterly. Peter's got a crazy life. Peter could not have written this book, uh, you know, a, a week or a year after Jesus died. He couldn't, he couldn't have done it, right? There was maturing, there was growth. Be of good cheer, right? Because there are things that you can do today that you couldn't have done 20 years ago. There were insights that you just didn't have, right? You, God hadn't brought you to that point. And so what we're getting, getting here in Peter is a, is a man who's got an enormous amount of maturity. One of the one of the things that I think, I don't, I don't know how many times he thought about this, but I think one of the most startling experiences Peter ever had was in this conversation in which Jesus said, do you love me, feed my sheep, do you love me, feed my sheep, do you love me, feed my sheep. Do you remember what else Jesus said to Peter in that conversation? If you love me. What's that? If you love me. If you love me, right. He, he does that, if you love me, then feed my sheep. But there's something else that happens that must have seized his mind. Fetz? Didn't he say something about, like, you're also going to, to follow my path on this one? Yes, but follow my path in what regard? Yeah. You're going to be crucified, okay? So Jesus shows up with Peter. He kind of reinstates him, and he says, Peter, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go, and you did what you wanted to do. But when you are old, so Peter, you're going to get to live to be an old man, so that's, that's great. But when you are old, someone's going to take you where you do not want to go. And they're going to stretch out your arms. And you're not going to like it. Basically what he, what, he, what he says to him. And can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine if like you get to have this encounter with Jesus. And he's like, okay, so Tommy, um, I've got a plan for your life. And it's going to end with you being crucified. Okay. And then, do you remember, the, you know, do you recall what Jesus says as soon as he tells Peter this is how the story is going to go? He gives, him a, he gives him two more words. Follow me. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. That's amazing. That's, that's, a, that's quite a thing because you might, I would want to be like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. While you're here, sovereign over the universe, could we skip the last part, right? Wouldn't you be like, if you had an encounter with Jesus and you had like, brain cancer, would you not be like, hey, um, how about you heal the brain cancer? The message is you're going to be crucified. And then Jesus says, follow me, which I think means two things. I mean, number one, I'll go first. And in fact, he already has. And number two, do it anyway. Right? Do this. Follow me. Do it. Finish the game. Do, do as you're told. Follow this path. But don't worry, I'm going first. I have gone first. Oh, good grief. How many times did he think about that conversation? You know, it's incredible. And then how does that shape the way? If you had that conversation early in the game, how has, that, how has he wrestled through and grappled through and considered all that that means, right, as he's living through the next 10, 20, 30 years? This is extraordinary. Kelly? I just wanted to add when he said, follow me. <clears throat> Peter's natural response is to say, well, what about him? Right. You know what I mean? Because he's watching John, and he's yeah. like, if, I, if that's waiting me, what's going to happen to him? And, and I love Jesus. It's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So follow me. I'm talking to you. You, you walk the path I've ordained for you. That's right. Ugh. Depend on what other paths I've ordained for other people, which is our nature is to kind of compare. And stuff. Yeah, for sure.
for sure. Absolutely. What about that guy? Like, I mean, that, and that's exactly what he says. And, he, and he's like, you know, listen, not, not your deal. Aslan does this all the time. Lewis, Lewis makes it a big point. And I'm, I'm re- going back through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. And uh, he keeps, Aslan keeps telling all the children, he's like, I'm telling you your story, not somebody else's. Um, and I, he's probably drawing that out of, out of that John 21. I feel like I'm seeing a hand. Jennifer? You know, I, knowing um, Peter's remorse at denying Christ, so yeah. I'm thinking, you know, trying to get into Peter's head, which is just, you know, probably ridiculous, but he's like, okay, I get a chance to redeem myself to this, to Jesus that I love. Yeah. And he's just assured me that I'm going to live a long time, so I can probably be pretty outrageous and bold knowing I'm safe. And I'll just deal with the end when I get older. That's right. I would be I, and, and I think it is so, I mean, and you see that, like in, the, in Acts, like he's like, he is, he is so bold. He went from denying he even knows Jesus to just defying all of Rome. He gets thrown into prison and Angel shows up, unlocks the door, so he walks out of prison and the next day he's like back in the square, like going at it again. And probably there is some sense that of his own invincibility until the moment that God says, this is how it's going to go. But I would wake up in a sweat. I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to live till I'm 80, and then I'm going to be crucified. <laughs> right? But all of that, that whole, all that he's experienced, that's behind the letter. Right? I, I was saying this last week, maybe the last two weeks, that the secret to the Psalms is the long view. Right? You've got to take the long view. Advent is about the long view that that, yeah, 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 this is going to be rough. There's a whole bunch of terrible stuff that's going to happen in here. But I promise you, the story ends well. You've got to take the long view. That's what he's going to do in this letter. And it's going to be one of the secrets. How do we engage in a broken culture in which we are going to become more and more reviled? How do you do that? You can only do it if you get the long view. Next week, well, downtown tonight, but then next week we're going to look at Psalm 37, which is another one of these shots of the long view. And the more that I've been studying and preparing for all this Advent stuff, the more that I just realize how desperately important it is that my soul is just anchored in this future hope. Because if I get the future hope, if I really think it's going to really end well, then that gives me all kinds of resource for the in-between. And if not, then I'm on my own. Then I don't have everything I need for life and godliness. Apart from his promises, this, this excellent, fantastic future. Okay, good. Uh, Peter, anything else? First Peter. Other things you want to say. We, I can start pulling on the threads you guys already gave, but we can get more on the table. Yeah, Kat. Talking about what did he think about it, I think his faith was renewed so strongly that, you know, when he received the Holy Spirit and all that, that he was able to deal with that. He was, yeah. He knew the hope thing. I mean, he knew eventually it was going to be fine. That's right. He, and also, he thought about it because he decided to be crucified upside down. That's right. So did you know that? So when, when, when he finally gets crucified at the end of his life, he, they're going to crucify him. And he doesn't have any say about that. But he's like, I'm not worthy to die the way that my Lord died. So would you flip it upside down? And so I don't know what that does to you. But so he's crucified in, in an inverted way because he just didn't want, he, he wasn't worthy of that invitation. That's amazing. Tim, it takes longer to be crucified that way because you're upside down. So the suffocation that happens doesn't happen. Even more painfully, I it's think. just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, what does it take to get a human being to that point? You know. And by the way, we 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 skipped over this. He also blew it huge, right? Galatians is all a great big rebuke of Peter. 
he had gotten drawn away by this kind of religious crowd and he was becoming more of a legalist and in some sense a racist against the Gentiles. And Peter had to, I'm paused to get in his face and say, you know, I said to Peter in front, of the Jew, in front of everyone, you're a Jew. You live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And he just takes him to town, right? Peter is like drifting off of orthodoxy. And then he gets brought back and he ends up writing this great commendation of Paul, affirming the, the, essentially the, the, the weighty biblicalness of Paul's own letters, letters in which he rebukes, rebukes Peter. So his life is, is a little twisty, but he ends, up, he ends up in the right place and he gets there. Okay, Kat. Are you talking about his dream? His dream. Who? You say he was rebuked. Didn't Peter have the dream about the Gentiles and the food? No, that was good. So yeah, so early on, um, Peter has this vision. It's, it's so crazy. So early on, Peter has a vision of like a, you know, somebody, of, a, of like a blanket of like lizards being let down and God saying, eat the lizard. And he's like, I'm not eating a lizard. He's like, eat it, right? And the whole point of that dream is to teach him that, no, God, God is welcoming the Gentiles. Peter is the guy that opens the gospel to the Gentiles. But then several years later, he's like pulling back from the Gentiles. And, uh, and it takes Paul to come in and rebuke him and remind him of what he once knew. Well, Paul rebuked him. I didn't hear him. Yeah. Yeah, Galatians 2, uh, pretty, pretty much Galatians 2, you can see that the bulk of that taking place. Okay, so let's go back to the letter, all right? So... Um, what was your first word, Rachel? Where'd you go? There you are. What was the first word that you remember writing down there? Strangers. Strangers. Okay. Take a, take a look at First Peter. The, the central idea, and one of the reasons that I'm so convinced that this is our letter, we'll try to make this clear as we go, is in chapter 2. It takes them a little while to get to this. But this is, uh, I don't know, this is the thesis. This is the point of First Peter. Okay. So First Peter 2, 11 says this. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is it. This is the thesis of the book. Everything that he said up, to, up until that point, and we'll go back and we'll look at it, has been to get us ready for the command, for the call, for us to live out 1 Peter 2, 11, 11 and 12. Everything that happens after it is a particularization of it. This is the claim, okay? Your aliens and strangers live such good lives among the pagans that it causes them to glorify God. Okay? He's going to talk about how to be an alien stranger husband, how to be an alien stranger employer, how to be an alien stranger sufferer, which is another one of Rachel's words, all these things. But this is the claim. Okay, now, when I say this, go back if you can. Think about your grid. Think about this. You've got your transformationalist and your counterculturalist. You've got your, uh, what are the other two? Two Kingdom and, uh, I'm missing one. Relevance. relevance. Yeah, the, and the relevance thing. Um, who would feel victorious if I tell you that this is the right answer. Which group might most naturally grab this? Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does that feel like natural to any one of those four? It's Okay. It feel, okay, good. It, it's, yeah. Oh, okay, good. This is what I'm hoping for. Okay, good. 
Okay, okay so, so there's a sense of countercultural, but you were going, eh. Why you, what, what were you thinking about that? Well, I think, okay, so you're saying uh, aliens and strangers, and then if you look at ESV, for instance, as sojourners and exiles, but if you're talking about being exiles, then it's the greater biblical context of like being in Babylon, for instance. For the culture within which you are, yes, you're not of it, but you're in it, and so it does have an edge also of transformationalist, I think, in the greater biblical context. Yes. Okay. So, so Lily is saying, well, it sounds like countercultural, but I'm not sure that it really is, and and that's the right answer. Okay. He doesn't say go be aliens and strangers. He says you already are, and so in light of that, what are you going to do? And what what I think we've been what I've been trying to suggest is that all four quadrants have things to offer, and we want to really kind of be in this kind of center that's grabbing the right things of all of them. And so while this immediately it looks like it's a it's a countercultural argument. It's not pure countercultural. All of these things are getting pulled in. Somebody, somebody sh- gave a shout out to the two kingdom. Who was saying that? Who said two kingdoms? Yeah, Jason, why, what makes you say that? Because he says basically win them over by your character and your like the references for two kingdoms, humble excellence. Yes, okay, excellent. So we recognize, you know what, the, the pagan, he's not saying overthrow the government. They're going to do what they do, right? But in this two-kingdom understanding, we said, well, the, the state does what the state does, and the church does what the church does, and there's something about this, as you, as you quoted this, this humble excellence, that's what's going to win the day, right? And so this is why I said this is, this is our book, because he's going to draw from all these things. It looks like countercultural, but he's not saying go be weird. He says you're already weird, right? We're our, we are sojourners and exiles. This is, this is language that goes back to the Babylonian captivity. We are aliens and strangers. We're already freaks. But how do we be the best kind of freaks that we can be? How do we absolutely change the world? And as I said, once he's got this idea, listen, you are this. So abstain from sinful desires. There needs to be a discipline in your life. You need to cut yourself off from bad things. But in such a way, the pagans are going to watch you. Live such good lives among the pagans. Who, who likes that line? Which, which quadrant is going like, to like that line? That's the relevance crowd, right? You're among the pagans. It's not separatist. Like, get in there. You should, your kids should be playing soccer with a bunch of wicked, evil 11-year-olds, you know? Like, <laughs> let's go. Let's get among the pagans. Let's do this. But we're strange, you know? We, we, do, we do our lives differently. And this is what we've got to figure out. This is hard because it's nice to just kind of pick your quadrant and hide. But we, gotta, we don't get to do that. We're weirdos, but we're weirdos in the public square. We're weirdos. We, we don't concern, we obey the laws even though we, we live to a higher law. And all of this is converging on God being glorified. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're going to talk, how do we do it? What does it look like? How does it play out in particular? What does it mean to be a strange sufferer? What does it mean to be a strange husband? What does it mean to be a strange worker? That's what we're going to try to try to get our heads around. Okay? That's the big idea. If you want to start reading this book and really understand it, that's, that's the center. Everything else kind of comes out of there. So let's do this. Let's go back um, maybe to the beginning of the book. Um, where shall we begin here? <coughs> Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about how we are. 
We kind of hit this a little bit already with kind of some of our future hope stuff. Take a look at the first paragraph of the whole book. Go back to 1 Peter 1. And let's just kind of read it as he opens it up. And I want you to see, even though he doesn't get to his thesis until 2, 11, 12 in, in that area, he's been building to it up, up till now. And so let's, let's just take a look and we'll walk through it. So I will read to you the first, gosh, I don't know, I'll give you the first 12 verses. And the first time through, pay attention to his demeanor, okay? Pay attention to the, the emotional tone of this, okay? Um, and you might think, even as we've talked about in the past, or I mean, talked about this morning, that you've got like, he's anticipating being crucified, which fills your heart with dread, but he's also living in the sense of, you know, that he's invincible until his time comes, right? There's going to be a complex emotion in his life. Um, he has the sense of the ultimate joy that is going to come. It's a very hopeful letter. But the letter is just permeated with language of suffering. We'll see that. What, which of those messages is predominating here as he opens the letter? Okay? So, First Peter 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of, Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... That word, do you know what that word exile means? It's when you're not living in your own country. That's right. This is the same language of so he doesn't really get to the case until chapter two that you're aliens and strangers. It actually shows up in verse one. Right out of the gate, you are exiles. He doesn't expand on it for a little while, but here it is. The seed is there. To those who are elect exiles, aliens of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are all regions in, in the Roman Empire. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. By the way, if you haven't never, never noticed that verse, what's significant about verse 2? It's great if you're building a, if you're doing a theology class on something. What is, what is it, Kelly? It's Trinitarian. It's incredibly Trinitarian. Do you notice that? According to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, he's doing something there. It's a very Trinitarian idea. Okay? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who? by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, who, to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. Pair up with, you know, your little row of socially isolated people, whatever we call this, socially distanced people. Um, 
uh, and look for the markers. What's the tone? What's the emotion? What's the vibe of this thing? And make, just start making a list of, man, he keeps using phrases like this. This is how it seems. So murmur for a couple of minutes, and then we'll see. I want to hear what you think is the, what's the vibe, okay? <laughs> anything popped there for you. What kind of mood is Peter in, you guys? What do you think? What's the, what's the, what's the mood? Hopeful. Anticipation. Yeah. It, it, it seems cheerful and happy, right? Does it not? Like, what, what were some of the lines that, that caught you that, that kind of seemed to be like a mood indicators in this? Living hope. Living hope. That sounds good, whatever that means. <laughs> right? What else? Yes, rejoice. There's joy. Excellent. Filled with glory. Filled with glory. I mean, it's, it's happy things that are on that are on his mind, right? He's living out Paul, or yeah, Paul, who says, "Whatever is lovely, noble, excellent, admir, you know, admirable, praiseworthy. Think about such things." It's like he's full of happy stuff. Any other key lines? More precious than gold. Yes, more precious than gold. This is good. Do you guys ever have conversations about your anticipated inheritance? And if so, is it like, is this good news? Notwithstanding the death of your parents, you're like, yeah, there's money coming. It's like, there's an inheritance, verse 4. Apologies to your parents. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. These are all, these are all happy language. He says, uh, in verse 6, we rejoice. Verse 7, you just share this, more precious than gold. It results in praise, glory, and honor. That's, by the way, your praise, your glory, your honor. Like you, like, we can, we can prove that maybe at another time. You're filled with, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory. The whole thing is incredibly cheerful. It's upbeat. It's hopeful. He's got this future anchor. So as we, remember, everything, everything's converging on how do we live in this culture? What do we do? Step one is that we should be filled with joy. You could look at a whole, we've been weeks on like the culture's crashing, everything's going into insanity and we're losing our minds and we no longer know what truth is. Maybe we haven't for a long time. It's all bad, bad news, dark days, it's discouraging. Terrible things are going to happen, right? That is not the mood of this book and that is not the mood that I'm advocating, right? We are to be a people who see an unimaginably bright future. Long game, people, long game. Yeah. Super loud. The, these uh, churches that he's that he's writing this letter to are they are they in active persecution or are they just suffering in some other way? 
Yeah, great. Active persecution. Yes. And so, in fact, so let's, let's look at that. So go through. You take a look. At, go back to your little groups here. What do you get now? Just look at the context. What are you, what are you seeing here about the... What, what's that? Thank you for me. Okay. So context. So what, what's the, what can you tell? There's, there's, more, there's a lot more clues throughout the rest of the book. But just in this first, you know, whatever we said, 12, 13 verses, what's their context? Okay. Take a look. Just take a second. Look at that. Verse six. That's it. You already, you already so, so can you go really loud, Marshall? Give us verse six. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Okay. So now. Brad, it could be, those trials could be, you know, cancer. It has nothing to do with being, being a Christian. But in fact, when we go to the rest of the book, it becomes very clear. It is, it's, it's absolutely persecution. I'll give you, you can, I'll, ru- I'll run through it here, okay? So if you want to tick these off in your, you know, your margin or whatever, here's, here's, here's what you get. 2.12, they are accused of doing wrong, okay? How dare you do this, okay? 2.15, they're being spoken of unjustly or maliciously. Verse 18, some of them are slaves with harsh masters. Okay, that's a disempowering thing, right? In 3.16, they're spoken maliciously about. In 4.4, he says this. This is a bummer. He says, they heap abuse on you because they won't live, because you won't live as they want you to live. This is the idea that, that they, they think it's strange that you will not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And so they heap abuse on you. Okay? Uh, 412 is a painful trial that they're going through. 414, they are insulted. Stupid, ignorant. Sometimes, you know, you know what one of the one of the things that they would call Christians was atheists. Do you know why they thought that we were atheists? They believe in the Roman God. They didn't believe in their gods. Yeah, this like, like you atheists, you don't believe in the gods. That's funny. Uh, Four fifteen, they suffer. Four sixteen, you they suffer as Christians specifically because of that. Four nineteen, suffer according to God's will. Five nine, um, and this place in that in five nine, their suffering is attributed to the devil, their enemy, prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And five ten. Peter promises that after their suffering, they will be restored. The context is one of great pain. So he says he is happy, and he's inviting them to see this glorious future, this, this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, fade, kept in heaven for you. But they're, they're present. The short game is miserable. Their suffering is painful. It's hard. And he's calling them to this sense of great joy. Hey, Jim. Yeah, bro. I think Archbishop Kwashi... Uh, it makes his, his testimony is so powerful. Yeah. He's living that in Nigeria. Absolutely. And his physical, his health right now, but, he's not, but even if he's totally healthy, he's, he's got those trials that we don't understand. Yes, he is an incredibly joyful man, right? He and Mama Gloria both. And you, 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 get, you just spend time with them. You can tell them they're just the kind of people that smile all the time and rejoice and have great hope. And this future anticipation of joy floods back into present pain in a transforming way. And if we are going to go through this culture in this way, we, there are a lot of things that we have to learn from Archbishop Kwashi, right? 
things that Pe- we have to learn from Peter. <laughs> and it's, you guys, it's intensely practical. This is not some pie in the sky thing. It's like, how do I do this? How do I live in a way that is winsome and joyful and lighthearted and happy, even though I'm fully, I'm fully read in on all the mess going, going on around me? The only way we're ever going to do that is if we have this living hope that Peter begins the letter with. He's calling us to a particular mode of being, and he's resourcing us in these first days. How do you do it? And it's not just, you guys, that we do this in a decadent culture, but we do this in the midst of unemployment, right? We do this in the midst of your own very real difficulties that you're facing. That's hard. I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to say, but it's really, really hard to do, especially when you have some acute awareness. But if we, if we can be the kind of people, the men and women, that build this anchor, not just, from, not just for gratitude, that's good, but this anchor towards hope... It has a transforming effect on our lives. And not just in us, but among the pagans that observe us, right? It is because of our hope that we can live different lives. It's the different lives that we live in front of a pagan world that causes them to see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what we're doing, okay? Now, Peter's going to break it down. We're gonna, there's lots more that he's going to talk about. Other things that, that we can be grateful for that feed our gratitude that might spawn more hope. Um, and then there's very specific things that we have to do. If we remember that we're sojourners, exiles, aliens, strangers, then we should be doing things differently. Differently than the rest of the world does. And sometimes they're going to see it and they're going to glorify God because of our good deeds. Sometimes they're going to say, you bunch of morons. Like, you're just so stupid. How do you do this, right? But we're playing, we are playing the long game too. We see it, we live that way, and that's what God is going to use to change not just us, but change those in his grace that he calls out of this brokenness. That's how we got to do it. So we got to stop. Read First Peter. Maybe read it a couple times. Maybe memorize it a little bit at a time, right? We get we'll t- $100. <laughs> we have $100 if we do. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Terry, you give Kat $100 if she memorizes it. And Kat, you give Terry $100. It'll be, it'll be great. Yeah, it'll be good. All right. So read it. Memorize it. Uh, and we'll pick it up. Uh, I think we're back on normal next week. Oh, by the way, next week, so you know, next week downtown, the downtown church, um, we're not going to hold a 7 p.m. service. We're going to hold a 5 p.m. Christmas jam. So if you want to come, sing some songs, see the property. It's a great place. Come down and see it, be with us, sing some songs. We'd love to have you at 5 o'clock next Sunday, but we won't be having our 7 o'clock service. Okay? All right. Thanks, friends.